You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with John Waters. Hello, could I please speak with John Waters? Speaking, it's me, Paul. Hello, John. It's such a pleasure to speak to you again. It's been so long. How is L.A.? Well, you know, L.A. is very sunny. It's uh, filled with some of the people you described, some of the people I don't think know how to blink. Uh, they are so stretched. But at the same... They don't look old. They, they seem to be ageless. But at the same time, it's very, very vibrant. It's very alive. I'm enjoying it enormously. I'm creating, I'm, cre- I'm creating something new. And I've had the really fabulous pleasure of reading. I don't know what to call it. I don't know if to call it a memoir or to call it, um, how to navigate the world while remaining creative. A, a self-help book for lunatics. I, I like that very much. And um, I'll, I'll give our listeners uh, the title. It's Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. Um, I'm particularly interested in the word elder here because I think it resonates. Oh, I'm, I'm not middle-aged. I'm 73. So what's 73 and 73? Six, 150. I'm not going to live to be that age, even with even with science. But, you know, it, it strikes me uh, strongly because it, it, it's both a retrospective look at your life and your career, but also when you say it is a how-to book, in, in, many, in many ways it also gives people a sense of how to navigate the world when things are very difficult, how to find your way. Yeah, I think it's how they get through, because I wrote a book called Role Models, as you know, that was about all the people when I was young that inspired me to take chances and try to become who I wanted to be. And now that I've actually for 50 years negotiated something, I mean, I'm still doing what I always did and I didn't have to change that much or get a real job. So uh, I, I think I'm trying to pass along some some knowledge about how to negotiate and how to fail upwards and always how to have backup plans and how to how to be organized and, and how to turn your obsessions into a way to make a living. How to be nimble, how to, how to find a way of always, in a way, confronting adversity, but always with what, what seems to me a, a mark of, of, of your work and your writing, always with a sense of humor and impishness. Hopefully, because I make fun of myself first. And, and you have to do that if you're going to make fun of others. But I think that a little bit of difference in all my books, all my movies, everything, I make fun of things that I really like. And, uh, and, and that's the difference. That's why the, I think no matter what, that's why I've lasted as long as I have doing what I like. Because under it all, I don't think I'm really mean. Yes, I'm mean to the Catholic Church in the book because they've been hassling me my whole life. I'm mean to some people. But even the, when I tell the stories about my Hollywood uh, navigation, even the, the executives that we bought with and everything, I, the bad ones, I don't name them. I never name them because, uh, you know, I cash the check. And from their viewpoint, I guess they're right because the movie didn't make money. So, But what they don't realize is if I had done what they wanted, it would have 
made even less money. <laughs> and now it's at least they keep playing and they keep being re-released and they keep being restored and everything. So they have a, a kind of a long shelf life. But you know uh, what what strikes me in what, what you what you just said is that it is really true that in this book in particular there is a strong sense of celebration. Um it is not yeah, I I think I I am celebrating my dreams have come true and I say I know that's enough to make any reader puke. puke yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they kind of have so uh, even more than I always dreamed about. So I'm kind of astonished and happy about it. But people say, oh, are you surprised? Well, no, I was always ambitious. And I always tried to learn about the business of the, of the field I was trying to get into. So, I mean, I read Variety when I was 14. I, I you know, I went to every art gallery before I had an art show. I, uh, I see the movie. I still go to movies all the time. I listen to new music. So I, I want to do, people say, how do you have the energy? How do you not, not have the exactly, exactly. 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 I I can't I can't agree with you more. How can you how can you not be curious? How can you not want more? Um, you know, I'm always reminded of of my father who, at the age of 92, um, stopped working because my mother became ill. And when they asked my father, "When will you retire?" before that, he said, "I'm too old to retire." I mean, really. Yeah, that's a Yeah. Retire from what? Because Now, I think sometimes if you are old and you retire, then you die, right? Then away. you die, exactly. Okay, and and reasons to retire. And, I understand if you didn't love your job, but you'd look forward to retiring. I'm not saying I have anything against retired people. Sometimes I look at them and think, wouldn't that be nice to do nothing all day? But I'd go crazy. But people, some people don't go crazy. Some people love that. They go crazy from their job. So it's each person has a different version of, of how to be content. And after 50 years, of, if you're still that angry, I don't know. You don't usually live to be old. I don't know any angry old people. That's one, you know, you have a wonderful chapter, uh, in, in this book called precisely No Vacation. Um, the, and I'm, I'm on one now. I'm in Provincetown. It's about Provincetown. And a no vacation is when you go to the beach, but you still work. And, and so it, you don't feel guilty, but you still maybe take off and go to the beach for two hours in the day or you do vacation stuff. But at the same time, you work. So it's no vacation, I think, is a good, a good kind of settlement with yourself about how, between laziness and craziness. I love that. Now, this book, in, uh, I, I read it in, in so many ways as a book of lists. Um, lists of what, what, and every single chapter is kind of a, a, a directive on how, how to survive. So, for instance, you have a chapter called Accidentally Commercial. And the first sentence is, all you need is one really good idea. A chapter called, a chapter called Going Hollywood. Young filmmakers should go to Hollywood whenever they can. Um, back. Because you have, the chance doesn't last long. And when the iron is hot. Right, know. right. And, and every, every single chapter begins in, with, with a sentence that then is propulsed in the chapter you develop it. My, I, I must tell you, my very favorite chapter is a chapter called I Got Rhythm. Uh, 
where you begin by saying you'll need to have really good musical taste to get through. I'm like. chapter that I so much love, I Got Rhythm, as I was saying, every chapter in a way is a a chapter that describes your particular taste. And it is filled with the most useful lists. And there are two moments in in, in this chapter I particularly love. And if you don't mind, I'll read a paragraph um, from each, each part. One of them is one of my, well, two of my musical heroes, but the way you describe them is just priceless. The other purchase. Let's see who they are. The the other purchase you need to make in music, and then I'll get to the first one, is Maria Callas. She's all you need to hear to understand opera. Anyone whose best friend was Pier Paolo Pasolini and get dumped by Aristotle Onassis so he could marry Jackie Kennedy, knows how to shriek with beauty, style, pitch, and total abandon. The complete studio recordings, 1949 to 1969, will make you go mad. Scenes of your own once you listen to every one of these 70 CDs, including 26 complete operas. It takes a while. But once you get through them all, you will feel as if you've had a musical orgasm like no other. Maria Callas was the bifetamin of classical music. You may have thought, oh, fuck opera, before you heard Callas's voice. But once you experience her life's work, you'll change your contempt before investigation. Now you've fucked opera, and it's a whole different tune. Thank you. Well, I, it's a pleasure. I'm, I might do it once again. Reads it to you as something that he's thinking he should change. <laughs> no, but it is. It, I, I, I love the, the, the. Well, when, when you speak about musical orgasm, and I love the fact that you do that because I think you are going. What are you going to do, John? And what probably the book is already doing for a lot of readers is turning them on. Dean and all them, they were opera queens, and they're, they're still people like that. 
that are obsessed by operas and they, they battle different opera stars, have wars with each other and everything. I find that incredibly, incredibly fascinating. And there's, uh, so, so James McCourt wrote novels about that. So, um, I, I always have been, um, impressed by, by opera cults and opera fanatics and everything, even though I don't know enough about it to be a good one. And you really don't have to know a lot about opera to enjoy it. You just listen to it, and, and you will enjoy it, even if you have no idea what they're singing about, which I usually don't. Well, you know, um, one person who has written about opera so interestingly, and you probably know him, and he took my call a couple of years ago, or maybe less, is Wayne Kirstenbaum. He wrote oh, a... Yes, yes, he knows a lot about it, so I'm sure he and James McCord are friends. Well, he, he wrote this extraordinary book about the relationship between opera and gay culture called The Queen's Throat. And um, it, it's really, it's really worthwhile reading. Um, the, uh, and I remember also a conversation I once had on stage with with Patti Smith, and among her favorite favorite uh, 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 genres of music is opera and is callas. And when when she spoke about it, she spoke about it so so movingly. The other person you speak about, I won't read it now, because I've given you that pleasure once, is um, is Glenn Gould. Another madman to some, who to me was incredibly handsome, took the most insane chances, and uh, fled stardom in a way that was for once believable, and uh, was just imitated nobody ever, and uh, talk about march to his own beat of a drummer, I mean, he, he invented a new kind of eccentricity, but to listen to him is incredibly relaxing to me, and incredibly, even when he's crazy and mumbling and, and doing all his, his vocal tics uh, yeah. that, that they didn't cut out of the records, you see someone that is, uh, he is, he became one, he with classical music, he went beyond having sex with classical music he is sex and classical music and he and as you say he is one of the the coolest man who ever lived i i think he is yes and also probably unhappy because he was too smart for his own good which i like people that are too smart for their own good and and he was and he was so obsessed like he, i love that he, he always thought it was wanted to be cold because he was Canadian, i know so i know Well, you know, think of that because I hate hot weather. Well, you know, there are two wonderful, there's a wonderful novel uh, about Glenn Gould that Thomas Bernhardt wrote, which I highly recommend. I can't remember the title, but it, it's fantastic. I haven't read that one. I don't think I've read a lot of his work. I, I'm sure there's you. There's a great little movie called 33 Short Films about Glenn Gould that's really good. I, I, I was going to mention that. And then, um, you know, I mean, Glenn Gould altogether is, is extraordinary. There's one. One thing I can encourage you to do, it's very easy to find it on YouTube, is the introduction that Leonard Bernstein does of Glenn Gould at a concert they had together at the New York Philharmonic. Do you know it? No, I don't think. I mean, a long time ago when I first was doing crazy Gould obsession, I might have seen it, but I have to look at it well, again. I'll, I'll... I have so many different... And the fact that he loved the Petula Clark is the most amazing it, it's, thing. It's, of all it's, the musicians that you think he'd be obsessed with. Well, you I know, just picture him sitting there listening to downtown, like insanely playing it over and over. 
and he and and he loved Barbara Streisand. Um, it's yeah. it's it's just it's yeah. it's magnificent. But the 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 Glenn Gould and Leonard Bernstein uh, really is worthwhile listening to. Leonard Bernstein comes on stage, and before Glenn Gould comes, he sp- spends about three minutes saying how much he disagrees with every artistic choice. That Glenn Gould will will make when he performs the Brahms uh, first piano concerto, but um, he is going to perform with him because of just the the, the intelligence and vision of of well, Glenn that's Gould. All right. and then he respected it. It's the same way, reason I read the editorials in the Wall Street Journal. I like to think how smart people that I don't agree with me think. That's right. Now, um, John. The very beginning of, of the book, which I, I really, I really want you to, to read, is all about fame. And, um, I remember, I remember a conversation I also had on the phone just before she died, sadly, um, with Ursula Le Guin, where she said, we keep confusing achievement with celebrity. I'm very uncomfortable with celebrity. I really hate it. This wouldn't be a feeling you have. No, but celebrity can hurt you. It it hurt me in the art world, and it still does, and that's why I make fun of it. Um, You don't want to become tabloid fodder because then you're not taken seriously. I mean, Cher has this great career as an actress, and I think the tabloid stuff hurt her. Um, So basically the inquirer and those who never write about me because I'm not hiding anything and I'm not that famous. But at the same time, no, I say in the book, nothing bad's ever happened to me because of whatever fame I have. I mean, only time it's horrible to be famous is when you're in a doctor's office waiting room and somebody goes, it's Joe Motors. And And they say, well, what's the matter with you? And you maybe don't feel like talking about it. And then somebody worse and who's Joe Motors? And you think, oh, please, please, please let me hear what the doctor will see you now. But that's, but that isn't true either because if you're on the road and you weren't famous, you wouldn't have gotten the emergency doctor's appointment anyway or a dental appointment. So it still isn't bad, even when you're sick or your tooth fell out. I remember when we had a conversation about um, your hitchhiking journey, you were talking about what a pleasure it was at times not to be recognized uh, and to be in. Showing him on my phone who 
I was. Like, I Googled myself so he would really believe. So I did use my fame that time to get a ride, yes. So it didn't hurt barrier. So I'd, I'd love you to read the beginning of, of the book. As, as I say, I mean, I, I really love the, the kind of energy, okay. the energy it has. And it, fame comes into the picture in, in a very important way, in a very important way. And I'm, I'm often remo- reminded whenever I think about fame, about that wonderful line of Rainer Maria Rilke in his essay on Rodin, where he says that fame is but the collection of misunderstandings that gather around a new name. But now you, yes. will, you will give this a, I believe the opposite. I know. I know, I, I know. That's why I'm using that quotation on you. But, but John, please do me the favor now of reading your own work okay. to me. Here we go. Ready? Chapter one. Somehow I became respectable. I don't know how. The last film I directed got some terrible reviews and was rated NC-17. Six people in my personal phone book have been sentenced to life in prison. I did an art piece called 12 Assholes on a Dirty Foot, which is made up of close-ups from porn films, yet a museum now has it in their permanent collection, and nobody got mad. What the hell has happened? I used to be despised, but now I'm asked to give commencement addresses at at prestigious colleges, attend career retrospectives at both the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the British Film Institute. And I even got a medal from the French government for furthering the arts in France. This cockeyed maturity is driving me crazy. Suddenly, the worst thing that can happen to a creative person has happened to me. I am accepted. How can I struggle when my one-time underground movies are now easily available? Even Multiple Maniacs was rehabilitated music rights-wise, and it's back in theatrical release from Janus Films, the original distributor of Godard and Tuvot movies, for God's sake. Pink Flamingos has played on television. How can I whine about my films being hard to see when Warner Brothers now handles many of my titles and Criterion, the classiest of all DVD distributors, is restoring some of my rudest celebrity atrocities? Even the Museum of Modern Art now has in their collection the elements of my earliest 8mm films that have never been formally released. And geez, all the books I've written are still in print, and two of them became New York Times bestsellers. How could that be? How? I can't even impersonate a damaged artist anymore. I actually have had friends for 50 years, and some of my dinner dates are not tax-deductible for business, the sign of really having a successful personal life. Knock on wood, I'm in good health. Good Lord, I'm 73 years old and my dreams have come true. Couldn't you just puke? Mm. This is not the enemy you may think it is when you're young. But if it comes too quickly, it can be a high-class problem. Yes, you should feel slightly panicked if your insane early work is taken seriously without any initial resistance. But know that being a starving artist is an outdated concept. There's nothing wrong with making money from doing something you love. You can be happy and fucked up and still triumph, I promise you. But suppose you're still failing, struggling unsuccessfully to find your voice. Ask yourself, am I the only person in the world who thinks what I'm doing is important? If yes, well, you're in trouble. You need two people to think your work is good, yourself and somebody else, not your mother. Once you have a following, no matter how limited, your career can be born. And if you make enough noise, those doors will begin to open. And then, 
and only then can you soar to lunatic superiority. Mr. Know-it-all is here to tell you exactly how to live your life from that day forward. Oh, it's blissful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's really, it's really blissful. And in a way, it goes against all uh, the ideas we have, you know, that we need to suffer in order to become. We need to suffer in order to become deeper. We need all of that. But you're saying no, not necessarily, not at all. Does it feel odd, though, at at moments um, when you look back or in quiet moments when you are with your conscience? Does it does it feel strange at moments to actually have become accepted in in the way in the way you have to have become, you know, actually, thank God, because otherwise, uh, you know, what would I be doing now? I, I, I don't really know. I might be in jail. You know, the only other career I could have had, I would have been a good defense lawyer and I would have been a good psychiatrist. And I believe in both. So um, I, I would have done that. But uh, I don't think I would have had as much fun doing that. And I don't think I'm obviously, uh, you know, something's the matter with me. I'm in show business. Everybody in show business is people that uh, feels insecure and needs the public to tell them good for the rest of your life. Secure people don't want to do that. My mother used to say you should only have your name in the paper when you're born, when you die, and when you get married. Well, I, sorry, Mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you, you haven't quite followed her advice. Uh, but, no. but, you know, I... I, I th- <laughs> I sometimes think to myself when I when I when I used to live in New York and I used to go into the Strand and I used to see everywhere um, you, your famous line um, on postcards and other such merchandise. Yes, without my permission, too. That's another thing. I love the Strand, but they asked if they could put it out on a bumper sticker. I didn't know they were going to have a whole line of work and censor me and not say the word F-U-C-K and put a star in it. But I still love the Strand, so I I, I let it go. But I do have a new update to that. Yes, don't go home. If you go home with somebody and they, have, don't, and they don't have books, don't fuck them. But if you go home with somebody and they have books in the bathroom, really don't fuck them. That's worse than having no books. I remember when we when we spoke once upon a time, you you said you you love having guests stay in your home, but what you particularly care for and relish is to make sure that they won't stay for more than two, perhaps three nights, and that in order to ensure that, you will leave certain books in certain places so that they oh, yeah. they might decamp. Yeah, I have a lot. I have a children's book called Dads in Prison. I have um, my favorite extreme book I got recently was called Extreme Ironing. I can't believe that that is a book, and it's pictures of people like ironing on mountaintops and speedboats. I never knew this was a competitive sport. And then there's another, my favorite other one I got recently was I Can't, the I Can't Chew Cookbook. <laughs> I mean, I, so I do like to get books with extreme titles and leave them around. Yes, just for guests to notice. Oh, what are you reading? And then they go, oh my God. Um, be- before we go back to, to, to Mr. Know It All, um, one aspect that I have always found extraordinarily important um, when speaking to you is your 
your love your real your love of literature and the fact that uh, reading is so tremendously important to you we had a whole conversation once about the books you you the books you collected and it, it i'd love you to to talk a little bit about the what kind of bookshelves books books we might find on your bookshelf now and i'm reminded of that wonderful line of of Umberto Eco, where he says that the contents of someone's bookcase are part of their history, like an ancestral portrait. What kind of portrait? Well, that's, that's true, definitely. I mean, I'll, here's the books that I brought with me this summer to read in Provincetown. I can easily tell you. Hold on. And I'm on a big kick of, of, of reading, um, pronounce her name wrong, Clarice Lispector. Oh, yeah, Clarice, um, fantastic. I, I'm on a real kick with her because she's really hard to read, and I really think she's so smart. I don't even know what she's talking about half the time, but I don't mind. She's too smart for her own good. Another one like that. Uh, these are the books I got with me. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the film that terrified a rattled nation. Uh, Defying Gravity, Jordan's story. That's the punk rock girl that had that great look. Uh, Witness to the Revolution, Radicals, Resistors, Vets, Hippies, and the last and the year America lost its mind. All right, let me go in the other room where I have the other ones. Uh, well, since I'm in Provincetown, the Selected Letters of Norman Mailer, the <laughs> biography of Edward Gorey, uh, Being Gay, How Physical and Entrepreneurs Mark the Movement, uh, Stage Fright Plays from San Francisco by Kevin Killian, uh, the, the uh, Galleys for Rachel Cuss's new book, because I'm a huge fan of hers, uh, The Hanging on Union Square, something that I don't know about, but a fan told me was his favorite book ever and sent it to me. Uh, Whisper Tapes, Kate Millay in Iran, Moby's second book, which I really loved, and The Life of uh, Nelson L. Green. That's what, that's my summer reading list. And do you do you think you'll get through it? Yes. Uh, meh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it depends how many airplanes I'm on. Um, well, half of them I've already read. So, um Maybe not, but that doesn't matter. I don't have to turn in book reports. Book reports in school are what kept me from being a reader. It made me hate books because we had to do them, and there was all books I had no into the life of Benjamin Franklin. I didn't feel like reading that in the summer. I wanted to read Street Rod and Hot Rod and books about juvenile delinquents. So I hated reading. I didn't start reading till Grove Press came out, and, and I started reading as a teenager. Uh, I was turned off from books because of book reports. Which book turned you on? Which was the first one was Janae when I read uh, Our Lady of the Flowers and and William Burroughs and Junkie and oh I want to be a beatnik, you know, so beatnik literature really uh was the first one. And uh and 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 then I always worked in bookshops, you know, I worked in the double day bookshop was the first job I had in Baltimore. Then I worked for Mary uh, Oliver and Molly Malone Cook's bookshop in Provincetown called East End Books. Then I got work for the Provincetown Bookshop for many, many years, and uh, and they were only open in the summer then, not the winter, so I got unemployment every year in the winter, which is how I made my early movies. And, uh, and then I started making a living from my movies. So to me, I could work in a bookstore today. There's three great places that have books in Provincetown. I just had a big signing here at MAP, one of them, and Provincetown Bookshop is still here. The East End Bookshop, it's the same name, but it's a different store, but it's a good bookshop. So I still go to bookshops all the time. I could work in one. was one of my, my very, very favorite um, 
jobs ever was was running a bookstore in in Princeton. I remember when I, I I used to spend three or four hours in the bookstore, and once the owner told me, Logan Fox told me, you know, um, you're here so many hours a day. I could pay you four dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Um, and you know, if you're very good, I'll give you four seventy five after six months. I never took home a paycheck, but boy, oh boy, did I did I did I get a lot of books out of those three years of working well, see, there. Well, that was the same thing. And when I worked for Mary Oliver and Molly Malone Cook, they t- at first I could only work when it rained because that's when the stores got crowded in Provincetown. So wherever I was, if it started raining, I'd run to work. And then the Provincetown bookshop said I could take any book for free if I sold books. So that was so smart because it was in the 60s when everybody stole everything too. So I didn't steal. And at the same time, I also read everything and got my education. It was like going to college, really, with E. Lloyd Hansen, the owner, really told me about Ronald Furback and all these things I didn't know anything about because I didn't even go to school. So um, I, I learned from working there, and yet I sold all the books I read and liked. So it was worth it. It was a really smart thing to do. Um, From management's viewpoint. John, um, are you talking about Mary Oliver, the poet? Yes, yes. And by then, she had, this is in about 1965 or so, she had one poem book that just came out, but she was, and she just died, Mary. She was, you know, I knew her forever and ever, but I knew her girlfriend, Molly, who was great, too. And, uh, and, uh, you know, they had this bookshop where you were allowed to be mean to the customers. It was really fun. Like, they, these people would come in and say, do you have Valley of the Dolls? And Molly would say, get out. We don't carry that book. And, and people, if they said anything bad about Norman Mailer, they would snatch the book out of hand and throw them out. You were allowed to be mean to the customer. The customer was always wrong. But Mary at that time was really dark. I mean, she would be in the back in a peacoat chain smoking in a peacoat when it was 100 degrees out. And and she grew certainly with an amazing career and a great success she had and everything. But I, I loved her and I got along with her great. But she was very, very different than people think about her. She was no sweet little earth mother. She was fun and really smart, but she did not suffer fools in any way. She had little patience for people that that weren't really smart. And I used to kid her. I used to say, you're crawling around in the woods talking to animals. I'm calling the police if I see you. You know, it's so amazing. uh, I I, I did like her very much. It's so amazing, John, because the way you've portrayed her now is so different, I think, from how we imagine her reading her poems. I know. And she was, she was funny and lovely, but she was, and I mean, she believed all that. I'm not saying anything wasn't completely legitimate of everything she wrote. She did go nature walks constantly and everything, but she also fall with the neighbors all the time. She was a drama queen. You know, um, one of my very, very big regrets. Maybe encouraged by Molly because Molly was, Molly really didn't suffer fools. And, and, and Molly was sort of the, very much the dominant member in that, in that relationship. You know, um, one of my very big regrets was not to be able to place a call to Mary Oliver. It nearly, it nearly happened. Um, and, but one of the ways in which I brought her in was by speaking to John Berger, um, a couple of years ago. I read him a, he didn't know Mary Oliver and I read him an extremely short poem of Mary Oliver, which I'll read to you now. It's two, it's four lines long. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. In my sleep, 
I dreamed this poem, and here it goes. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. You know, eventually her career got so big that I think some of the poetry world resented her for it because she was a best-selling. I mean, I think she probably sold more than any poet really in, in America these days. So I think um, I think that it turned a little against her when she got this great great um, success. But but Mary was the real thing. God knows. I mean, she was she and she had the worst dog. I hated her dog. <laughs> really? Had pictures of that dog on every. She knew I hated that. Really? Oh, see, I could be. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it because we always imagine Mary Oliver's dog. I mean, I see it on every on every cover when imagined. Oh, Anyway, but Matt, she knew I hated that. You know, she when I spoke at Molly's funeral, I said that, and uh, and I'm going to Mary's. Um, I'll probably say it again because I'm speaking. I'm speaking at her uh, her memorial in New York. So coming up. So uh, I love Mary, and I knew her well enough where I could kid her. She when she taught at Sweetbriar, uh, she had me down, and and I was the I was the speaker, and she got she introduced me, and it was so weird to hear Mary say the word asshole. <laughs> it just seemed so unlike anything that would ever come out. But she was great. No, Mary was just incredibly intelligent, but she really didn't suffer fools. She she was like, had no patience for a lot of things in life because she was such an outsider that she, by what, she just eventually, through poetry, she didn't care about much else, really. That's what was important. She cared very much about old friends. She cared about... Uh, people that she really cared about but but she was uh, fanatical in some ways that were perfect for me I mean I got along with her fine I, but I saw her have arguments with lots of other people and neighbors like that but um but and there's, I think a woman I met is, is writing, she talked to me, is writing a biography of her. And, and Mary said to me, I said, what do you want me to say? You know, it's horrible when someone's writing a biography about you. And then, and then they said, what am I supposed to say? You know, I know a lot, but what do you want me to tell? She said, I want you to tell everything. I said, no, you don't. Don't tell people. <laughs> <laughs> have you told her no, about? Uh, did tell so, <laughs> have you? What? 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 What, what did? You, is there anything that you told this biographer that you you regret having told her? No, I don't think so. No, because I said to Mary before, can I tell her that story? Can I tell her this one? She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I was sort of amazed she would say yeah to. But no, I didn't say anything. No, I just tell, talking like I'm talking now about her and and. With great love. With, with great love. I wouldn't mind what I'm saying. I mean, you're talking about her, John, with great love. With great love and yeah. and saying also, yeah, you know, I, I loved her, but I hated her dog. I did hate her dog. Um, there's a chapter I love uh, in, in uh, Mr. Know-It-All called Delayed. And again, the, the first sentence is glorious. You say, you must travel. The day you stop touring, your career is over, Elton John once told me, and he's right. This has been, being on the move has always been important to you, and I think it's been coupled with the fact that you are able, as you say in, in, the, in the next chapter, overexposed, you're able to hold a public, 
The first, the first line of that chapter of Overexposed is, if you learn to speak in public, you will never be unemployed. So travel and learn how to speak in public. Yep, it's true. And you, it's like to have a career where you, you always have to stay in touch with your audience. It's like being a politician. I've held babies. You, know, you have to do that. You have to completely keep going out on the road. Everybody will tell you that. Bill Maher told me that. Elton told me that. They, even even at the height of um, the Tonight Show, Jay Leno, at the height of his career, when he couldn't have been more famous or successful, on his one night every week, he went to Nebraska and did stand-up. Of course, it was on a private plane, but still, he didn't have to do that. So it, it keeps you in touch with the real world. It keeps you in touch with your audience, the most important people that, that enable you to have this life. So um, to me, you never stop touring. You never, ever do stop touring. And as soon as you do, somebody's waiting to come in and steal your place. There, there, there was a moment which we, which, we had, which we shared together. You may remember it. Before we spoke at Bryan Park, um, when I put you on a, on a couch and psychoanalyzed you or tried right, to, yeah. you, you remember that? We went on the merry-go-round uh, on the carousel, and I remember you asking me a question. Um, you said, well, have you, have you taken poppers? And John, I've told this story many times. I had no idea what poppers was. And you, uh, knew this quite immediately and were, there was a certain kind of hilarity that, that took you. I, I, I think I mentioned at that point, uh, Karl Popper, uh, which was really the only person I knew, uh, by that name. And then you explained poppers right. to me. But there's a chapter that begins, which is called Flashback, where you say, Maybe it's time to take LSD again. I love yes, how I did. And it's funny, I'll tell you a popper story though. In Provincetown, every year at the Provincetown Film Festival, I used to have what we jokingly call the popper party. And I had seen Academy Award winners, the top critics for magazines, all doing poppers probably for the first time in my apartment. Now this was at a big party, it was but and it was hilarious. And it became so notorious that the Boston Globe outed me and wrote about it, and the entire town crashed the party the next year like it was Mother, that movie with Darren Aronofsky made. So I had to stop doing it. So this year at the Provence, and that was oh, five years ago. This was 15 years ago. I had it, I had it for like eight years or something. So this was the Provence Film Festival. So the head of it this year, who is not the same head that it was when those, during those years, she had a party at the same time. She said, We're so I went and bought poppers, which I haven't done in really a long time and felt really embarrassed. But I got two jars and took them to the party just as a old, just for nostalgia. And she really laughed. But people did try them again the first time. And it, it only lasts three minutes. So it was kind of funny. And so I guess I took one hit too for the first time. 20 years, but that's the only drug I've taken really in a long time, except for LSD that was really strong that I did take for this book uh, with Mink Stoll, and I took acid at 70 years old to see what it would be like. And uh, if I had known how strong it was, because I, I took eight months to get it, and I got it from really a good provenance, I'm probably the last person that knew Tennessee, that knew, knew Timothy Leary. I'm kidding, but close. And uh, it was really where you hallucinated for like 14 hours. But I did it with Mink Stoll, who is my dear friend, 
friend for 50 years and, and another younger friend, not my boyfriend or anything, just a friend. And uh, it was really great. And I don't have to do it again. And I'm not telling young people to take drugs. I'm telling old people if they had great experiences with LSD in the 60s and never had a bad trip, try it one more time. It, 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 it cleans out some cobwebs. And then, even if you have a bad trip, they can't say that you have dementia. You just say, I'm tripping. <laughs> um, um, John. What a man has to do to get a book contract. I, I, <laughs> John, the, the, the book ends... Um, very movingly and very beautifully, um, with a chapter called Grim Reaper. And the, again, the, the first sentence, which is two words, okay, death. Um, well, at 73, so you cannot not think about it, but I decided that this ego is too strong to ever kill. So I'm gonna think of a way to beat death, which I describe in the book. In a humorous way, but who knows? You know, maybe you can make your own resurrection if you concentrate hard, hard enough. So I did write about death, my parents' death. When your parents die, you cannot. You certainly makes you think about your own death because you, you've been through it with so many people. So it is a chapter on death. I, I think it's a humorous chapter. It is. It is. Chapter two. It is very humorous and, and serious. There's a mixture of, of depths and levity to it. You're dealing with something uh, that you know that is around the corner. So basically, it's it's to me. It's I, I said this is how to die too. I, I try to give advice about how to have musical taste, how to fall in love, how to do all the things that you can do, but also maybe how to die and and to face it with uh, as much I don't know courage and 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 the sense of humor as you can. You know the the the, the Greek philosophers believed that um, to philosophize Philosophize is to learn how to die. Um, so, so there, there's a there's a whole tradition of trying to to approach that moment um, with some form of serenity, some form. Um, yes, but you don't get a choice. That's the problem. You don't get a choice. Everybody says, "I want to die in my sleep." Yeah, but you don't get that choice. Right. And people say, "Oh, I'd kill myself." But sometimes when it gets a bit, you can't even do that. So um, you have to accept the fact that you really can't control it. So it's something that's that's hard to do. So you just have to uh, just try to prepare yourself mentally for the fact, which is the hardest thing anybody ever has to do in their life, I think. So I, I had to concentrate that on to write the chapter. If I was going to give a advice on everything, uh, certainly um, dying is one of the most hardest things to adjust to. John, in, in closing, um, may I ask you to read the very last page of Mr. Know-It-All? Hold on, let me get here to it. It begins with my old apartment. Okay. My old apartment had recently been rehabbed despite the fact that it had laid in architectural ruins for decades. Years ago when I went by, parked and knocked on the door, hoping to get a nostalgic tour, no one answered for quite a while. Finally, a mole-people-type squatter cracked the door and whispered, you don't want to come in here. Out back, the windows had been broken or boarded up. Now my one-time pad is completely unrecognizable. Clean, freshly painted, new bathroom and kitchen. Even the staircase has been moved to a whole other area of the apartment. 
Almost no detail of the original is intact. But before I let out a cry of disappointment, I touch the one windowsill that seems familiar, and suddenly my vision blurs, doubles, and flashes of intense light throb inside my itching sockets. I feel my eyeballs roll back in my head, and as soon as they rotate 360 degrees inside and land right side out, I see that my inner city home is now miraculously the same as it was when I left it in 1967. The same Maxfield Parish prints on the wall across from the 1940s pinups of forgotten Hollywood ingenues I rescued from a barber shop. Oh God, that great red Warhol Liz Taylor poster that I stupidly lost later in life. It's still there. Same with the stolen George Gross. The Statue of Limitations must be over by that by now. Why am I worrying? There are no laws here. Best of all, the James Brown Live at the Washington Coliseum poster is still taped to the refrigerator door right where I left it. No wonder I always dream I still live here. I still do. Yet my past is meaningless now. I'm still John Waters, but the thought of my career is not in this world. I'm fully content, feel loved and protected, and if there's such a thing as happiness, well, this is it. I will sit here for eternity, not wanting a thing. I let out a shriek of contentment so loud the windows shatter. The whole world is silent for just a second. But it's my second. Won't you come visit? John, it's been... That's the end. I've given away the end. That's a spoiler alert. No, no, no. I was about to say that there's no spoiler alert. Um, Because I think that the whole book, I mean, it has such a... A, a fantastic, um, a fantastic, um, melodious and symphonic quality to it. And these, these chapters, which are movements are so wonderful to read. I, I can't encourage the people who are overhearing our, our phone call now to, to go out and get Mr. Know It All. You'll, you'll know a little bit more about John Waters and you'll also know a little bit more on how to live your life perhaps um, with some oomph and some pizzazz. And perhaps, oh, thank you, Paul. And, thank per- you. and perhaps sweet. some naughtiness, too. Yes, a little bit of that, a little bit. There's a dirty chapter, too. You oh, always need a dirty chapter. You always do. Grace I, I, I love that. I, I love that chapter where you say you always do need a dirty chapter. It's called One Track Mind, if I remember. In any in any case, in any case, John, thank you so much, and have a very good thank summer. You, Paul, have, have, I'm glad you landed in LA and are doing well, and uh, we'll speak again. Yes, I hope we meet in LA and have a good summer reading all those books, and maybe some of them that you will discover in the meantime. All right, thank you so much. Bye bye.